0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Ethicast. I'm your host, Bill Coffin. We have two very special guests with us today, both from Indiana University's Kelley School of Business. Todd Haw is an Associate Professor of Business Law and Ethics and Arthur M. Weimer Faculty Fellow, whose scholarship focuses on white collar and corporate crime, business and behavioral ethics, and federal sentencing policy. His work has appeared in top law and business journals, including the Northwestern University Law Review, Notre Dame Law Review, Vanderbilt Law Review, and the MIT Sloan Management Review. He is often quoted in news outlets such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Bloomberg News, and USA Today. Sunil Betty is an assistant professor of business law and ethics, whose areas of expertise include intellectual property, marketing ethics, and brand strategy. His work has been published or is forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review, Harvard Journal of Law and Technology, Alabama Law Review, Indiana Law Review, the Journal of Business Ethics, and Mind Your Marketing. He has written for the New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Forbes Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, and the Washington Post. And he has assisted with patent and trademark disputes, providing theoretical and empirical analysis and provides ongoing branding and ethics consulting. Now, there has been a long-running effort to establish compliance as a value-creating function within the enterprise, but the data for that has been very hard to come by. Todd and Sunil are changing all of that with their forthcoming Iowa Law Review article, Valuing Corporate Compliance, in which they provide groundbreaking, empirically sound, direct evidence that corporate compliance can create positive revenue-enhancing value for companies. By understanding this truth, companies can gain a more complete and strategically useful understanding and measurement of compliance's true value for corporate stakeholders, regulators, and legal scholars. We're going to talk about this article and its implications today. Todd and Sunil, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Bill. Uh, happy to be here.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: What was your impetus for conducting this study? And Were there any conclusions that you were setting out to prove from the very beginning, or were you testing a method in order to see what results were going to come from it?
1: Uh, This is kind of one of those really fun things that happen in academia uh, every once in a while, which is kind of a hallway conversation uh, between Sunil and I. So we were talking about uh, corporate compliance and business ethics, and I was uh, lamenting the fact that uh, one of the biggest problems in corporate compliance is identifying its true value. There's a lot of debate about exactly what that is and how to quantify it. And Sunil has this incredible background, both in business ethics, but also in uh, in marketing and branding research. And he just immediately said, oh, wait a minute, I've got a method for that. We can do that. And we started talking a- about that method. And that sort of launched the whole project. So it was just a, a one of these you know moments where uh, two ideas came together and and launched uh, launched an idea.
0: For those audience members who are not familiar with choice based conjoint analysis, can you describe what that is and why is it so important to the study that you've authored?
2: Sure, Bill. So choice- based conjoint analysis comes from the marketing realm, particularly branding literature. And what it tries to do, is figure out what are consumer preferences about a given product or service. And so the way you do that is you give um, consumers hypothetical products and you ask them to choose which one they prefer the most. And each of these products vary on, on different characteristics. So you might have a cell phone that has a really nice camera or a bad camera or is blue or is white, uh, has this much storage, uh, has this kind of GPS navigation, whatever it may be. Through sort of an empirical method of of choice-based conjoint and surveying a lot of people, we actually can distill which preferences or which things that that, uh, customers care about, which things they care about more or less for a given product. And so it's really relevant for us because what we sort of internalized was compliance can be viewed as a type of characteristic of a product. Now, it's not about the product itself, but it's about the company that's producing the product. So the question was, do consumers care about buying from a company that actually has a robust compliance program? And choice-based conjuring can help us answer that question.
0: Your study makes a pretty compelling link on that regard between organizations that have a strong compliance program and I guess a greater consumer willingness to engage with that organization in the marketplace. There's a great quote, uh, compliance is worth more than a pretty phone, right? So I guess my question is, is this a function of the consumers are noticing the compliance function itself within an organization? Or is this part of a broader correlation between companies that tend to value compliance also tend to value things that are more directly customer facing and might also impact a customer's decision to do business?
2: So the answer to your question is yes, if I may, right? And so the idea is both those things are happening. One is what we focus on in the paper. So what we focus on in the paper is sort of the former of what you said, which is if someone's buying a product and they don't really know much about the company, but they do know that the company engages in robust compliance, are they willing to pay more for that product? Do they want that product more in comparison to the same product where a company isn't engaging in compliance? And we answered yes. Now that's not to say that companies also don't have sort of brand equity. We didn't really study that particular aspect uh, in our study. But it's very possible that consumers start internalizing the fact that certain companies care more about consumers, care more about employees, and that sort of internalization allows them uh, uh, to express their preferences by buying from that company. So certainly is a possibility that's going on in the marketplace. Our studies focused on the former though.
0: There's a fair bit of commentary around how Gen Z is driving values-based consumer decisions, mainly how Gen Z consumers aren't really that fond of doing business with companies that they feel don't align with their own personal values. So I'm wondering, do you see any kind of generational difference amongst consumers in the data from your study? Or do you see that there is a potential for development in your findings over time uh, as Gen Z itself gains more earning power in the marketplace?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, aspects of the study we could take So one might be sussing out some of those generational differences, others uh, might be adding in different elements of of compliance programs. So we we only focus on uh, kind of three different ones uh, because we just have only so much space in the particular study. Uh, We'd want to think about maybe field studies down the road, so there's a lot of places to take this. Um, uh, But we did have some, I think, Sunil, correct me if I'm wrong, but we did have some indications from um, comments that participants made that give us a little bit more insight uh, as to what they were thinking uh, generational or otherwise.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, in our paper, we don't really go into any generational differences. Um, You know, I looked back at at our data and we saw some differences um, by generation, not necessarily statistically significant differences, but that's not to say that those don't exist, sort of just in the sample we recruited, we didn't see that. We did see some other sort of interesting differences. We saw some gender differences. Um, We also saw some education differences. And so the idea here is that, you know, various customers are going to care more or less about compliance. And Mm -hmm. part of the process, and this is what we're hoping to do, is encouraging sort of managers, uh, marketing, marketing managers, whatever it may be at the company to start segmenting the market and start understanding how consumers and in what way consumers care about Alliance.
0: What are some proof points from all this that you think are worthy of further exploration, whether it's you or the discipline at large? Yeah,
1: well, I just want to talk about the, you know, what we found and sort of the importance of that. And, and then maybe we can think about, uh, what, where we would look in the future. I mean, sort of sort of three big kind of takeaways, uh, from the paper. Uh, so one is that consumers are willing to pay a premium, uh, for products that come from companies that have a, a robust or well-established compliance program. Uh, so we could identify uh, that would consumers will pay more essentially for, for a product that comes from a company that is that has a robust compliance program. That's a really big finding. So uh, the reason that's so important is because primarily up until now, compliance has really been talked about or thought about as sort of this... Um, uh, liability avoidance mechanism. That's that's how it's talked about the most. And so, you know, if, if that's the case, what managers have to do then is think about, okay, great, how much do I want to invest essentially in order to avoid this potential liability uh, down the road? Uh, that isn't the most inspiring way to build a compliance program because uh, first of all, it's always looking kind of externally and it's trying to get or judge uh, the, the prospects of something that are very hard to determine. Essentially, is a regulator or a prosecutor or a civil litigant down the road gonna sue you for, for something that your employees did? That's really difficult. So what companies, uh, what the compliance community has really done in, in reaction to that is try to think about, okay, well, what's the business case for compliance? So how do we think about uh, corporate compliance in a way that makes the you know the business case, and what folks have tended to do is say, well, compliance leads to a bunch of positives in the marketplace, but there hasn't always been great empirical um, uh, validation of that point. Uh, and so, what our study set out to do is, is see if we could look for a better way to determine is there actually a revenue positive way to look at corporate compliance. And so that's the first main takeaway, is that consumers are going to pay more. So that means you're going to get a revenue benefit. And we think that's really, really important because no matter what you say about uh, business, uh, listen, and the bottom line is that managers care about revenue. That's going to be their first touchstone. So yes, they want to avoid liability and cut costs. But if you can demonstrate that your uh, department, your business department, is going to be revenue positive, and it's going to contribute to directly to the bottom line. That is a huge thing for a manager, and that is a way to get support for any project within a company, whether it's compliance or anything else. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second is that consumers are going to value uh, products that come from companies that have compliance more more so than they value other types of attributes of those products. So Sunil mentioned this at the outset, but what we found is in certain instances, consumers will pay more for a product that has a robust compliance program than they would for a feature that companies, uh, you know, tout or or um, uh, talk about and market to their consumers. So, you know, whether that's the color of a phone or something else, uh, we found that consumers actually care more about compliance than they do some of these other things. Again, that's a really important finding within a company because it puts compliance on the same footing possibly as some other um, uh, departments in in an organization, maybe say branding or ops or something like that, right? It gives it, it raises the status of compliance because now compliance can say, hey, wait a minute, we're just as important as branding because we, what we do actually drives consumer value uh, as well and will drive revenue. And then the third thing, we found this was really interesting. I think we weren't necessarily expecting this. But we also found that if you link a compliance program, a type of compliance program, more directly to the product itself, like there's a natural connection there, uh, consumers will pay more for that product. So for example, Mm -hmm. if you're selling a a cell phone, and you can market a consumer privacy program, a compliance program to that uh, consumer, Uh, they will pay more for for that cell phone. And so we saw this direct link. Another example, when we were looking at a manufactured product, if we looked at um, employee safety, uh, health and safety, which Mm -hmm. is more, you know, something you would uh, link to um, manufacturing, we saw that there was a, a price increase. So by linking those two more directly, we see that also uh, companies can get a price premium for the product. So those are kind of our three main takeaways. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's our launching point for future work uh, in, in, in this uh, area.
2: Uh, it would be really cool to see you know, business scholars, more traditional marketing management scholars come into this debate and start saying, okay, th- how are we actually gonna go about you know, effectively communicating these things? you know, that's sort of not necessarily a legal question. You know, we as the legal academics push this so far and be nice if sort of, you know, more traditional business-oriented scholars took sort of the next next stage.
0: As educators, uh, you know, you are both in a privileged position to kind of see tomorrow's business leaders as they're taking shape, uh, as they're getting ready to start their own careers. From the perspective of, Uh, Career Development in Ethics and Compliance. What would you say are some of the implications of your paper in terms of how professionals can think of ethics and compliance as a profession to join uh, or current professionals in terms of how they value uh, their own role and responsibilities within an organization?
1: So I teach primarily MBA students uh, these days and I see increasingly students are interested in making a positive impact in the world. They wanna work for companies that are ethical. They wanna work for companies that comply uh, with the law, Uh, but they also have, uh, at least at the Kelly School, they have incredible uh, skills in the, the, you know, finance, accounting, uh, data, quantitative realms. So one thing that this uh, paper I think does Is allows us to sort of join those two right so you can you can think about you know i want to be a manager in a company and use these skills uh, that are going to help the company's bottom line while also doing good and there's a way that this paper sort of connects that because i think you see students who say that's great i want to do good but i i want economic value out of that in some ways and i want some proof that that's going to work right because they're data minded uh, generally. And so the paper allows allows them to do this. I'll also say, um, you know, as we were working through um, finding a publisher for this paper, we got a lot of comments from law students uh, who had worked before they went back to law school, had worked in compliance in one way or the other. And they were just overwhelmed with this paper in the sense that they saw it really as kind of like that missing piece of the puzzle that when they were in compliance, they wish they had so they could show to their, their boss, their manager or whatever to sort of prove up the value proposition of compliance. So it's been a really fun thing to think about how the paper is going to you know, impact people going forward, but also uh, sort of where it's, its niche or its need was uh, currently.
0: Todd and Sunil, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights with us today on, it, on The Ethicast. Thanks, Bill.
2: Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having us.
0: I'm Bill Coffin, and this has been The Ethicast. To read Valuing Corporate Compliance, please check out the Iowa Law Review. The article will be coming out later on this year. For more episodes of the Ethicast, please visit the Ethisphere YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ethisphere. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe either on YouTube or on any of our podcasting platforms at Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. Thank you for subscribing. It really helps us out. To learn more about Ethisphere's many exciting products and programs, including the world's most ethical companies, the Business Ethics Leadership Alliance, and our data benchmarking platform, The Sphere, please sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter, Ethisphere Insights at ethospherecom newsletter. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, remember, strong ethics is good business.